Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm joined by our co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Good morning, Bill. How are you doing? It's a good question we have today. Infrastructure, $1.2 trillion. Indeed, $1.2 trillion. That's the amount of money coming from Washington from the bipartisan infrastructure law passed in 2021. And that means at least $110 billion over what the feds usually spend for bridges and tunnels alone, and tens of billions more for resiliency, water, airports, mass transit, electric vehicle chargers, and even clean school buses. So how is the rollout of this ambitious initiative proceeding? We have a uniquely qualified panel of experts to answer that question and tell us what this means for cities, counties, and states. But first, a few words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and also on the special briefing podcast. As always, we've taken your questions in advance, and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, special briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. And now let's get down to business and turn to our panel. To kick things off, we have a very special guest with us, Samantha Silverberg, the White House Deputy Infrastructure Implementation Coordinator. In her role, she helps oversee execution of the infrastructure law across more than a dozen federal departments and agencies. And before her current job, Samantha served as special assistant to the president for transportation and infrastructure on the National Economic Council. We're also joined by Congressman Earl Blumenauer, the veteran Oregon Democrat and head of the Congressional Bike Caucus, speaking of uh, infrastructure. And alongside the congressman, please welcome Allison Primo Black, chief economist for the American Road and Transportation Builders, economist Leah Brooks of the George Washington University Trachtenberg School, Jessica Jennings, legislative director for transportation and infrastructure at the National Association of Counties, and our regular market maven, Vikram Rai, lead muni strategist at Wells Fargo. Welcome again to you all. And now let's get the discussion rolling. We're going to cut to the White House and hear from Sam Silverberg. Sam, putting a trillion dollars into play, that's no small order. So please tell us, how's it going? Well, thanks so much, Bill, for that introduction and the invitation to be here today. As you mentioned, I'm going to kick us off by putting the infrastructure law in context and giving us a bit of a progress report on where we are two years in. And so the bipartisan infrastructure law, along with the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, are all part of the president's investing in America agenda. The general idea is that strategic public investments are essential to achieving the full potential of our nation's economy. You can think of the Erie Canal, rural electrification, or the interstate highway system, major public investments that facilitated local, regional, and even national economic growth. And thanks to his leadership in Congress, we are embarking on the largest infrastructure research and development and clean energy investments in history that have the potential to dramatically change our economy in lasting ways. 
And so the IIJA, or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, as we call it, is a once-in-a-generation investment in our nation's infrastructure. Infrastructure Week is no longer a punchline. We are delivering an infrastructure decade. And the scope and scale of the bill is really unprecedented. It includes significant investments in roads and bridges, transit, rail, ports, waterways, airports, EVs, drinking water, high-speed internet, clean energy, transmission, legacy pollution, and even climate resilience. But it really has the potential to change communities in remarkable ways. It gives us the resources and the tools to achieve truly transformational objectives. We're going to rebuild the nation's most economically significant bridges and 15,000 smaller bridges in communities across the country. We're making the largest investment in public transit in history, the largest investment in rail since Amtrak's creation. We're building out the first ever national network of 500,000 charging stations. We'll deliver clean water to millions of households and schools and replace the nation's lead pipes and service lines. We're going to ensure every American has access to reliable, affordable, high-speed internet, build thousands of miles of new transmission power lines to facilitate the expansion of renewable energy, and make our community safer and our infrastructure more resilient to the impacts of climate change. There are actually over 375 programs across a dozen departments and agencies that are part of this mammoth law. And so delivering this investment on time, on task, on budget, as my boss Mitch Landry likes to say, really requires enormous collaboration and coordination across all levels of government, labor, industry, philanthropy, and others. And so where are we two years in? Believe it or not, November 15th will be the two-year anniversary of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill becoming the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. We will have a much more comprehensive roll-up in November as we approach the anniversary, but just to give you a few kind of top lines and measures of progress today. So there's over $300 billion already out the door. So out from the federal agencies into the hands of our state and local partners who are building and administering these projects. We have over 38,000 projects across more than 4,500 communities in all 50 states, D.C., and the territories. We have a detailed interactive map on invest.gov if you're interested in exploring more and seeing what's in your community. But this is really, again, just the start. Just in recent weeks, even, or months, we've announced um, some really major programs. Earlier this summer, we announced $42.5 billion for high-speed internet through the BEAD program. Just last week, the Department of Energy announced $7 billion right in Philadelphia for hydrogen hubs, a tremendous clean energy and manufacturing investment. Just yesterday, DOE also announced $3.5 billion for projects to improve the resilience of the electrical grid. And recently, $1.4 billion for rail safety, which much bigger rail announcements still to come. We also have key projects moving across the country, many projects that had been waiting really for years, if not decades. The Brent Spence Bridge between Kentucky and Ohio is funded and moving. The Hudson River Tunnel between New York and New Jersey has early actions underway. The BF Sisk Dam in California's Central Valley is funded. Sulox in northern Michigan is moving along. And we've launched meaningful partnerships and technical assistance programs to help communities access these funds, especially those communities that both need the investment the most, but may not have the capacity or the expertise to chase them. But, you know, this is just the beginning. As this audience knows, infrastructure delivery can take years. So while we are two years in and moving really fast in the scheme of things, we recognize this is really only the earliest stages of implementation and there's so much more in the pipeline. So again, thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing from my fellow panelists. Now we're going to turn to Alison Primo Black, 
for an on-the-ground look at how the infrastructure bill is proceeding. What does this mean in terms of new projects, like Sam referred to, in terms of jobs? And also, where are the bottlenecks? Permitting, labor, engineering? Tell us about it. Yeah, happy to be here with you all again. And I think Samantha gave a great overview of the IIJA and how those projects are moving. And I can tell you from a market standpoint, for the transportation sector, we're absolutely seeing that program have a very big market impact. The second thing I want to highlight, and I'll go into a little bit more detail in a minute, but we've also seen, I think, a very positive development is state and local governments have also stepped up to increase their own revenue. So it's not just the federal investment, but we have seen additional investments on top of that. And then the third thing, all of the key market indicators we're tracking show that IIJ money, as I said, really having a market impact in terms of actual construction work and what's coming down the pipeline. And Samantha said, this really is a program with projects, particularly for the highway, the federal aid highway program that is really touching just about every community and county across the country. So those formula funds, which for the highway program, most of the highway and bridge investment are what are considered state formula funds. So states have a lot of ability where to put that money for projects that qualify. And we've seen states commit all of those formula funds that they have to get out the door by the end of the federal fiscal year. So that's really important because that was a very big increase in funding, especially for the first year. But states have been able to handle getting that money out and committed to tens of thousands of projects for the federal aid highway program alone. There have been over 50,000 project commitments for various projects and programs, which is a really, really good sign. As I mentioned, states are also increasing their own investment as well. So we track all 50 state DOT budgets. We absolutely saw an increase in fiscal year 2023, that impact of the IIJA impacting those state budgets, really supporting growth in capital spending at the state level. But what we've also seen this past year is 25 states have raised their own transportation revenues. Part of that is to match those federal funds, but it's also increasing their own investment. And that has ranged from one-time funding measures. Arizona committed an additional $680 million from a state surplus they had. Same thing in Connecticut. We've seen a program for bond issues of over $3 billion over the next few years. So there's that one-time funding, but we've also seen some of the reoccurring revenue. So things like electric vehicle-related fees, other motor vehicle user taxes and fees that will help sustain that increase over the next few years. And then we also track local ballot initiatives. We have at least 200 that we're tracking so far that are on the ballot for this November. And that's really important. And I know we'll hear from some speakers later on about that local funding piece, but those local areas are very dependent on those general revenues coming in. So those are all very positive developments. And as I mentioned, contract awards, which are kind of our leading indicator of work coming down the pipeline, are at record levels for the second year in a row. And then we've also seen an increase in construction activity. So those early IIJA projects are actually starting to be built. We're seeing the boots on the ground. And again, those record levels and just the construction activity of what's going on right now. And we expect that to continue to be growing over the next decade. Now, bottlenecks, we've seen a lot of big projects get out the door 
using IIJ funds. Whenever there are big projects, that means there are also going to be more permitting requirements. So things like clean water, clean air requirements, the NEPA process, waters of the U.S., those are all things that take time. And the more that we have delays in that process, that can make getting those projects to that construction phase longer. So that continues to be an area where I think we need to see continued work to help streamline that process and make it more efficient, but also continue to protect the environment and some of those concerns that are out there. Last big bottleneck, labor We have seen record levels of employment, particularly by highway and bridge contractors. So they are hiring a lot of new workers, but we also know that job openings in construction have been at very high levels, which means there are a lot of job openings that are not being filled and that construction unemployment rate is very low. So we do believe that contractors would be hiring even more workers if they could get that supply. So happy to answer questions at the end on any of these issues, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Well, thanks a lot, Allison. And we will turn back to the the bottlenecks and job training issues, but now we wanna go to the counties and Jessica Jennings. One of the things I've observed is that smaller communities especially have issues applying for all kinds of federal pandemic funding, conceptualizing, designing. I know that Bloomberg Philanthropies has done a lot of work in this area, Results for America. So what's the county view? Allison talked a lot about states, but you've got a lot of infrastructure at the county level. We do. We do, Phil. Thank you. And for those who don't know, I'll just give you some quick stats. So 45% of public road miles and and nearly 40% of bridges are owned by counties, but we do not receive any sort of direct funding for those assets. Of course, appreciate our federal and state partners. And those formula funds are very important to us too, because those are projects that are carried out within our counties. They're just simply not projects that we get to choose. And, And we would say we know best what our local needs are and certainly there are a lot of, of local needs. The formula funding it is great because it's consistent. And this bill is also great, the infrastructure law, because we have a lot of new competitive opportunities. But the, the key word there is competitive. So you have to be competitive to access those funds. And there's a lot of talk about this law being transformative. And of course, at the county level, we want to make sure we're doing our part to achieve that goal. But unfortunately, because of the nature of the law, similar to past laws, when we have to compete amongst ourselves, and obviously some counties are much more well positioned to compete than others, and then we have to compete with big players, right, like like the states, who are also getting 90% of funds from a surface transportation bill anyways. It does make it difficult for counties. We've already seen some, I don't want to say discouraging, but I am going to use the word discouraging results. A study came out regarding where the electric vehicle chargers are, basically saying that more than 70% are in the wealthiest counties of the United States and nearly 100% are in majority white counties. So, you know, this is a huge goal of the administration and, of course, of us. We want to make sure we're not left behind, right? Most of America's roads are in rural areas and 70% of counties are rural. We experience all kinds of challenges when it comes to our small counties. And the biggest one of those really is our capacity. Some of these offices are staffed by one person, and that one person you know, is everything from a grant writer to the million other things, also answering the phones. We've heard this anecdote over and over again So that really poses a challenge. But other than that, we talked a little bit about broadband. I know Samantha referred to that. 
when we don't have broadband in rural areas, how do we compete? And we're working closely. We have some great champions in Congress working with Senator Cornyn right now, but many others certainly have worked with Congress in Blumenauer to achieve some of our transportation priorities. But deploying broadband, we know, will just help us become more competitive. But it's not the only answer. Technical assistance is so critical for small and rural counties, but not just technical assistance, the right kind of technical assistance. And for these smaller counties, a lot of times that looks like more of like a cradle to grave. We go in and help them be competitive through the life of the grant and also the reporting requirements at the end. DOT has come up with a new program, Thriving Communities, which we think is an excellent example of something like this. But, you know, it's $25 million. So that does not go as far as it should. And I think what we would say is we have this money. It's out there. Let's make sure it's being used how it should be used and meeting the goals of everyone. And I think we can do that with a little bit more technical assistance. And Allison mentioned, of course, the permitting delays. At the local level, our dollars are already stretched tremendously, especially in rural areas that don't have large population bases because we are funded primarily by property taxes. So when we degrade these investments even a little bit, we very well may have lost our local match, et cetera. So these are just some of the same challenges we've run into in the past and we continue to. NACO obviously is, is trying to mitigate these challenges and, and we appreciate so much the work of our federal partners in doing this. USDOT is a great example of the common application process they're doing where you apply and they pick where your project best fits. That helps us. That helps take a lot of burden off of the county and it also reduces the administrative burden by allowing us to apply for all three programs with one application, which I probably don't need to mention can be extremely costly to be competitive. So I would just close by saying we think that the key to the future is regionalism and counties are very well positioned to do that. And we've really got to get the funds to a lower level, understanding not every county is in a position to administer $100 million bridge grant. Certainly, that wouldn't even really match up. But you understand what I'm saying. But we've got to figure out a solution to get it closer to the ground, closer to where locals can make the best decisions for their communities, but not in a silo where it really does achieve some regional goals. And I'll leave it there and happy to take questions at the end. Thanks so much, Jessica. And Sam, I hope you're taking notes and we can continue this dialogue in the Q&A session. And I see a thumbs up. That's terrific. Congressman Blumenauer and Susan are up next. But first, just a quick note. This is a reminder that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archived edition of this and all of our past special briefings can be found on our websites or on the special briefing podcast. And with that out of the way, now, Susan, it's your turn to introduce our next panelist, Congressman Blumenauer. Thank you so much, Bill. And it is indeed my honor to introduce the Honorable Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who has served since 1996 as a U.S. representative from 3rd Congressional District of Oregon and is rightly celebrated as Mr. Infrastructure. Congressman, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, Susan. It's great fun to be with you again at a time when Infrastructure Week is no longer a punchline. We've been doing this for decades. And for the first time, we've had a major infusion of resources, unimaginable, even just a few years ago. We've been, as you know, been pushing for years to try and replenish the Highway Trust Fund, look for alternatives. Well, the dam broke, 
and we've had this gusher of resources. And most important, we have an administration. And I, I've worked with five different administrations on infrastructure issues with varying degrees of success and enthusiasm. This is the first time we have a commitment unequivocally to be able to rebuild and renew America. It's a refreshing change and an opportunity for us all. I appreciate Sam going through the litany. I mean, it is worth repeating in terms of the $550 billion in overall infrastructure, the $11 billion in transportation safety programs, where we are having constantly reminded how important that is. And I'm pleased that legislation I've had with Safe Streets for All and Vision Zero to allow states to use these for opportunities to enhance safety. We continue to have examples of that on an ongoing basis. She mentioned the Brent Spess bridge between Kentucky and Cincinnati, which I've used as an example repeatedly in my visits to that area. But now it looks like something is actually going to happen. The investments in transit has been a high priority for me. And at a time when we're being hammered because of circumstances, we're still recovering from COVID problems in inner city, the 90 billion to upgrade, modernize and improve access to transit. The largest investment in transit history is at just the right time. And her reference to the passenger and freight rail investment, inconceivable even a few years ago. I am excited that we're being able to move on this. But I'm also excited that the projects that are being involved are comprehensive. They are designed to deal with the circumstances of today. Our water infrastructure, our transit, transportation are compounded because of the challenge of climate change. And right-sizing projects to deal with the heat, to deal with extreme weather conditions, water and sewer is coming at just the right time. And it's critical that we take into account the changed circumstances with climate change and some of the other economic dynamics that we're contending with. For me, seeing the notion that this is an administration that is committed to not just moving money out the door, funding projects. They are committed to the right ones, a low carbon and equitable future. We've seen throughout the country the impacts of major infrastructure that was not designed and constructed with sensitivity to the communities on which actually they were inflicted, dividing neighborhoods, putting undue burden on minority and low income, these programs are dedicated to try and put communities back together, not just to avoid future problems, which they are committed to, but having them actually invest in programs that actually tie together communities that have been torn asunder. This is extraordinarily serious at this point. Having appropriate planning on a comprehensive basis is so very, very important. I'm also excited that we have investments to deal with the transition and electrification of our transportation future, electric buses, EV charging stations. We've watched the rapid introduction 
of electrical vehicles. We've also had an opportunity dealing with e-bikes. I have to reference my pleasure in terms of work that's being done in that respect. An e-bike makes any bike user into a, a bike commuter. We're watching the usage spike and present opportunities for communities to look differently at their infrastructure and challenging needs. Having electric cargo bikes, for instance, we have these traffic jams with Amazon delivery trucks. UPS started as a bike messenger service a century ago in Seattle and watching now seeing opportunities to break some of the congestion problems with delivery using e-bikes. It's exciting development, giving more tools to local communities. But we are notwithstanding this massive federal investment, which is going to pay dividends for years to come. We still have a serious problem with long-term sustainable financing for our transportation system. And as people on this call know, we've had programs in the past dealing with trying to get the federal government to step up and do its part. I'm pleased that there are some communities, some states that have stepped up with one-time only funding, looking at trying to match and leverage, but it's no substitute for the federal government to do its part on a long-term sustainable basis. Indeed, some of the opportunities with the federal programs for infrastructure and energy are going to compound the problem with the Highway Trust Fund. Despite some efforts and on some state level, and actually some of them have sort of punitive fees against electric vehicles, the fact is that we do not have a sustainable program to deal with the loss of revenue from electrification. I, for years, have championed a user-based fee for transportation. We're watching some of this playing out in real time in the New York metropolitan area with their efforts at congestion pricing, which needs to be part of the solution. And the technology is available to help us do that. But the resistance that we've seen to this point, and it's playing out between New Jersey and New York, is something we need to spend more time on for people to understand the benefits and the opportunities of transitioning to new technologies for long-term funding stability. So we've made remarkable progress. We're going to be reaping the benefits for decades to come on a balanced multimodal approach and trying to make it climate sensitive. But we still have most of our work ahead of us. And I look forward to having the momentum and the incentive that comes from these investments to be able to build on future progress. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman. We will be returning to you for dealing with some of these questions on long-term funding stability. But now it's my pleasure to turn to Professor Leah Brooks, Leah Brooks is Professor of Public Policy at the Trachtenberg School of the George Washington University and a known expert on these issues. Leah, tell us how difficult is it to build infrastructure in the United States? Well, thanks for having me, Susan and Bill. I'm here not because I have any particular insight about what the U.S. is building right now, but because with a colleague, Zach Lisko, we've studied how much it costs the U.S. to build infrastructure in the past. 
And Zach and I looked at building the build out of the U.S. Interstate Highway, the biggest infrastructure program the U.S. has done by many measures. And what Zach and I found was that over the build out of the interstate system from the mid 50s to the very late 80s or early 90s, the U.S. spent about four times more in real terms to build a mile of interstate highway. And that struck us as a lot more, so a lot more cost for this possibly the same highway output. And so that's the, sort of our first big headline. The second big headline is that now you might think, okay, well, you know, the U.S. became a richer country. So maybe we're building a nicer highway and so we're spending more money, but that's fine because we're getting a better quality output. And another thing Zach and I were able to show is that, in fact, infrastructure costs more in the U.S. than it does in almost any other country in the world. And you might not be surprised that it costs more in the U.S. than it does in developing countries like China, but you might be surprised to hear that it costs us substantially more than in other countries like Germany or Australia countries that we think actually have a full suite of environmental protections in the same way that we would like to. So the other two things that come from our work is, so people usually ask, okay, so there's been this big increase in cost. Where is that increase in cost coming from? And we can show, I think, pretty definitively that that increase in cost is not driven by an increase in the per unit price of asphalt or concrete or construction worker wages. Um, even though some of those have increased over time, those increases are so small relative to the overall cost increase that we find that they are just unable in any meaningful way to explain what's going on. So to put it differently, the increased cost of highway is not driven by concrete costing you more per ton. You might be using more concrete, you might be using more construction workers, but the individual construction worker and the individual ton of concrete are not costing you more much more in inflation-adjusted terms. So if it's not those things, then what is it? Zach and I suggest that there is, in the U.S., we've seen a rise of what we call citizen voice, which we define as a suite of changes. And those suite, that suite of changes are legislative changes, judicial changes, and changes in civil society. And all of these three together have worked to make projects more expensive. I think probably the most intuitive example to people who don't work on these projects all the time are as legislation that gives citizens the ability to sue the government when they feel that the government is not properly administrating a law inconsistent with Congress's initial intent. And to the best of our understanding, this rise of the ability of individuals to sue the government when they feel the government isn't isn't properly administrating, is a feature that begins in the U.S. largely in the late 60s and early 70s. It's tied, but is not exclusively limited to environmental legislation. So I'm always horrified when people leave my paper thinking, oh, well, the solution here is to remove all environmental laws. And so that's uh, that's not what I'd like you to come away with. But I would like, I do think what we can show, what Zach and I show in our work, is that there is a trade-off to increase citizen input. And increased citizen input can give you some very valuable outcomes. I think it keeps us away from the bad things that Representative Blumenauer talked about, building highways through communities where communities are particularly unhappy to have those highways there. And those are outcomes I don't think anybody wants, 
And having said that, it's, I think it's also true that increased citizen input increases cost. And it's important that as citizens, we're aware of that trade-off because other countries seem to be able to manage this trade-off in a way that we don't, that leads to probably similar quality outcomes at much lower cost. Thank you very much, Leah. This we will return to. Of course, there's a huge challenge when we have such a decentralized system and such needs that are nationwide. We will come back to this in the Q&A. But now it is my pleasure to turn to Vikram Rao, who's been with us before and who is the head of municipal strategy at Wells Fargo. Vikram, now is a time of economic turmoil. The markets and mortgage rates are heading towards 8%. Bond rates, municipal bond rates are high. What impact does that have? We've heard about costs from Leah. What impact does that have on the costs? How are we going to build? Tell us how you see the current markets and somewhat longer term, although I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you have as much of insight as I can hope for. So thank you, Vikram, for being with us. Thank you, Susan. And it's my pleasure to be here as always. So the IIJ, it's a noble initiative. The progress has been commendable, despite the bottlenecks that my fellow panelists have alluded to. Unfortunately, as you correctly mentioned, rates have become a major bottleneck. And state and local governments, like most investors and issuers, I mean, they are suffering from a rate shock, given the rapid increase in rates. And let's just put the rapid increase in rate in context. So since year-end, 10-year Treasury rates have increased by 105 basis points. Five-year rates by 95 basis points, and 30-year rates also by 100 basis points. So by about a point. Now, since the passage of the IIJ, which was November 15, 2021, 10-year rates are up by 330 basis points, 3.3%. So that is a shocking increase in rates. And that's why the seed money that the IIJ provides has not been enough to galvanize the spending that is required to upgrade the nation's infrastructure. Now, Investors, investors tend to in, engage in the formal trade. The formal trade is a fear of missing out trade, meaning that they sell when the market is cheapening. So they sell in a sell-off and they buy in a rally. And it's just, uh, you know, it's called fear of missing out because they don't want to miss out the rally or the sell-off. Now, issuers are not prone to the same emotion, but because of the staggering rise in rates, uh, they have been pushed to the sidelines. And this is very evident from the new money issuance trend, which is down 15% year to date. And see what we see over and over again. So the municipal market, the annual issuance is about, let's say, 400, on average, 400 to 430 billion uh, per year. So that means that the weekly calendar is about, about 8 to 9 billion. Now, what we see is whenever it's a Fed week or whenever there's volatility in the market, the issuers don't issue. So essentially, they do not like issuing in, in volatile markets and will issue if they really have to. And because of that, because infrastructure infrastructure projects are deemed non-critical, most infrastructure deals have lost out because of the market volatility. Now that said, what's the path forward? Holding up key infrastructure projects while waiting for the volatility to subside? Okay, maybe that makes sense at, at some level. But waiting for lower rates is not an optimal approach because rates might stay longer, uh, well, higher for much longer. And yes, 
you know, when the recession comes, the Fed will cut rates and we will see a more normal upward sloping curve. But the advent of the recession is nebulous at best. And I just want to go back to my point about why I think rates will be higher for longer. So think about what's happening. Yes, we have a lot of debt outstanding. Now, for the treasury market, about 30% of our debt is held by foreign investors. And by that, I mean reserve managers. And because the dollar is so strong, reserve managers have been selling treasuries to stabilize their local currencies. So that's a bid for treasuries, which is missing, which is putting upward pressure on rates. And secondly, and most importantly, probably, it's the Fed. So the Fed is trying to reduce the size of its balance sheet. And the run rate that they want to achieve is about a trillion per year. I don't know if they'll, if they'll achieve that. But that the Fed is a price-insensitive buyer. And since they are stepping back from the market, that is also putting upward pressure on rates. And then you have retail buyers, and then you have pension funds. And that makes up for more than three-fourths of the treasury buyer base. And you think about the volatility in the market and all that's happening. Do you see a buyer stepping up to catalyze a rally in the market? I don't. And that's why I think state and local governments need to take a slightly different approach. Firstly, and I alluded to this, that the I talked about the shape of the yield curve. So the shape of the yield curve right now is inverted. It's inverted and it's kinked. So that means that short rates are higher than longer rates. And that is not typical. It typically happens six to nine months before recession. But in this instance, this occurred about more than a year ago, and it could stay this way. Now, this is a moment of opportunity for state and local governments because what they can do is they can issue bonds matching the tenor where rates are the lowest. So, for instance, the 10-year Treasury is hovering on the 5% mark, but 10-year AAA munis are around 350, and that's about 70% of Treasuries. And so they are dramatically lower versus the front end of the curve, or even the long end of the curve. So that's one approach, that you utilize the shape of the curve and issue debt where the rates are the lowest. And secondly, what they could do is they can issue callable debt. And the mortgage market is the perfect analogy for this because callable debt can be refinanced later. See, what we do for our, our mortgage loan, for instance, we buy a house because we have to. Now, we cannot wait indefinitely to buy the house, so we eat up the, the upfront cost of higher interest rates, and then wait for a period when we can refinance those costs lower. So state and local governments can do the same. And they can do it easily because the essential service of the municipal market has historically afforded the resiliency in the face of economic uncertainty. And credit remains strong. Now, before I wrap up, I just wanted to discuss one more aspect of the IIJA and how things haven't worked out the way they should have. So the, the IIJA paves the world towards more transportation infrastructure via public-private partnerships. And it does so by doubling the amount of available with the objective to increase P3 funding. But unfortunately, this flexibility that the IIGA provides, it's of limited use if state governments don't choose to use it. And I, maybe I shouldn't say choose to use it, because the reality is that the complexity of P3 structures can be daunting. So state and local governments, they need expert guidance. And many a time, governments have found themselves on an unproductive P3 path after a lot of time and effort has already been expended. So while the governments need to prioritize P3 projects and they need expert guidance, private entities and experts need to adopt a more proactive approach and collaborate with public entities if they want to drive innovation and transportation infrastructure via P3s.
Okay, I'll stop there, Susan. I'm happy to take questions later. Susan, let's kick off the questions. We got we certainly got a lot to, to chew over, including tension between counties and states and how to get how to get smaller communities in the in the game and also what to do about the highway trust fund. Let's start with the issue that Representative Earl Blumenauer brought up as well, which is the highway trust funds and the long-term funding source. And perhaps we could start with you, Sam, on ways of thinking about those long-term challenges as we roll out this major infrastructure bill. And uh, after Sam, please, let's weigh in. We'll go across and perhaps next we'll go to you, Allison. Go ahead, Sam, please. Yeah, I think think I'll just start by saying this current program is fully funded. Definitely acknowledge there are long-term solvency issues for the Highway Trust Fund. And the law did include resources and direction for a couple of different pilot programs, something called the Strategic Innovation to Revenue Collection Program and also a national VMT user fee pilot. There were also pilots and studies authorized in the FAST Act. And so those are all tools to help inform the policy debate for the next reauthorization. At least from the administration's perspective, right now we are laser focused on ensuring that the funding available in the bipartisan infrastructure law is being expended on good projects throughout the country, though definitely appreciate that there are some very significant policy considerations as we look forward to the next five-year reauthorization in a couple of years. Allison, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I will. I mean, it really comes down to, and the, the representative can certainly knows this better than anybody. Congress, it, it comes down to three choices. You either cut the program, which I think there's no appetite to do, to reduce the federal highway program to the revenue levels coming in. You can raise some sort of user fee or reoccurring revenue, or you can cover that gap with general funds, which is what has happened over the last bill and in recent history. And I think the challenge with that general fund covering those revenues, that gap that we're talking about, is that you lose that link with the user fee, which traditionally has been the gas tax. So I think we are really in this period of transition. I think we have a couple of ideas of where we could be headed if we do want to go down that route of some sort of linked user fee, but it's just taking a while to get there. And the general fund is covering that in the meantime. Well, Congressman Blumenauer, Oregon, as I recall, has has done quite a bit of work on user fees, per mileage fees, especially for, for electric vehicles to replace the gasoline tax. What can Congress do to, to foster experiments like this? Well, as Samantha mentioned, there are a number of elements that have already been incorporated. I haven't paid a gas tax at the pump for 10 years in Oregon. I participated in a pilot project that is a user fee. Ultimately, this is part of a solution that's more sustainable, and it also helped reconnect road use with funding. The problem that we have faced is that nobody wants to bite this bullet. There's not been a single administration, and I think I've referenced five, where there's any enthusiasm for diving in. The fuel tax has become toxic. And I've had legislation to raise the fuel tax, Congress after Congress. We've had massive displays of support with the U.S. Chamber, with the AFL-CIO, with road users, local government. We had everybody who supported it, except the public, and the politicians. 
And I have just reached the point where it no longer makes sense to try and move forward with a fuel tax, in part because it's increasingly becoming obsolete. As we move to electrification, we're in a downward spiral, and you'd be playing catch up if, if you could get it increased, which in this climate, it's not possible. So looking at the experiments that have been authorized in terms of road user fees, I think is very, very important. It is an opportunity not just to provide financing, but it's an opportunity for us to enhance the experience in terms of being a motorist. The same infrastructure electronics that would enable us to implement a road user fee would also add extra applications that would let you know when you're at lunchtime, if you're near a Thai restaurant, opportunities to be able to put elements in that that would enhance the road user experience. Linking it to road use is one of the absolute imperatives in terms of dealing with congestion. Now, we've seen international experiences in Europe, in Singapore, central London. These things, when they're implemented, actually can be quite productive. But there is a challenge in terms of dealing with the, the general public. And what has been referenced in terms of LEA, we have some challenges in this country. We're much better at opposing things than getting things done. My progressive friends are great at stopping projects. And that layers the costs and adds to the challenges. I'll just conclude by saying I strongly believe that it is important to protect the citizen engagement. The challenges that we hear in terms of getting projects approved and people point to the legal system, by and large, when the process breaks down, it's because people have short-circuited the citizen involvement and the careful planning. So we need to do it right, but we need to get off this notion that we have to make an art form out of being opposed, whether it's transportation or housing. Thank you, Representative. The National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program, there's funding to deploy this, and this is very much related to charging infrastructure and to establishing an interconnected network to facilitate data collection, access, and reliability. Data which you just referenced, Representative, could be perhaps useful and maybe related to user fees. So perhaps we can have comments on the rollout of this initiative, as well as user fees. And I'm going to turn to you, Jessica, and you, Leah, if you'd like to weigh in, and then perhaps we'll move to others as well. Sure. You know, I'll really leave kind of those NEVI funds, maybe for Allison to talk more about, since they really are along the highway. And we are, again, the only ones we can access for EV chargers are competitive dollars, but we're certainly attempting to do that. But to Congressman Blumenauer's point, you know, counties certainly believe that the user pay approach is the cornerstone of, of federal transportation policy and that it has to continue to be. And we're kind of more of an all tools in the toolbox. You know, how does that shake out? We've supported the congressman's legislation to increase the fuel tax and also 
supportive of EMTs. So I think we're just trying to find the best way to pay for our local infrastructure and trying to, as the congressman referenced, you know, get a general consensus. And it is difficult to do from the public because the moment you say a fee or a tax, you have quite the opposition just without even explaining, like, you hate this pothole too, and we need to fix it. And you're complaining about it, but you don't want to pay to fix. So if there's a public education campaign and all sorts of other things that come with just having the funding and identifying the problems. Leah, and then we'll turn to Allison. Just quickly, I mean, I think the congressman is exactly right that if you, in two ways, first, that in the long run, the gas tax is is a loser. It's already a political loser, but in the long run, we're not using gas and it's not a great way to fund our roads. And then second, that if you want to propose a new tax, you better be able to give the public some kind of potential benefit from that tax. And I think the beginning, the bargain with the gas tax was that there was a benefit. We tied the gas tax to the provision of roads that people wanted to build. And now it seems like at least there's some hope that if we have some kind of vehicle miles travel tax, we could potentially, I think politically, the solution has to be that we tie a new tax to something that people, some benefit that people see from it. Like what, Leah? I don't know. The congressman suggested I can figure out my Thai restaurant while I'm driving. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if that's possible, I think that, that we need some we need something that the new technology will give people just, in order to make just, them feel like it's worth it. Let me just jump in for a second. I use the Thai restaurant flippantly. But one of the challenges you have when you're driving is, for example, dealing with issues of parking. And people are endlessly circling the block trying to find a vacant parking space. You can have the technology here that will tell you where the closest parking space is and allow you to pay for it in a seamless fashion. Think about the directional issues. These are items that complicate the driving experience. And I think if we had a comprehensive effort using this technology, we can find applications beyond the Thai restaurant that would help make it much smoother, more efficient in terms of payment. And there's going to be payment involved. But part of the pain for payment is making it inconvenient. Well, we can make that more convenient. Being able to give people more choices, how they drive, how they accommodate those stresses, I think we'll be surprised at how many things we can put on this platform that will make it better for the road user. And candidly, steering them towards alternative. Obviously, I'm a huge bicycle proponent. We have some opportunities to make a difference there. I think I referenced the fact that the e-bike makes any bike user into a bike commuter. Being able to have more alternative transportation choices will ease up that challenge and give people interchangeably between whether it's walking, whether it's transit, bicycles, giving people more choices and helping them understand how to use them is part of the application for the user fee. Let me just jump in here with a quick jump ball because we're we're just coming to the end. Uh, coming to the end. By the way, I love my e-bike. E-bikes for better or for worse have taken over the, the streets of Manhattan where they compete with pedestrians, cars, trucks, Amazon delivery hand carts in a total free-for-all. But the number of city bike, electric bike, docks around the city is really quite impressive. They, they have taken over. So one quick jump ball. Leah talked about citizen voice. 
and project delays. So we're not going to solve this problem in a minute, but I'm just curious, just go around the room here. What can we do to preserve citizen voice? This is a democracy, last I looked, but at the same time, get things done. Was Gretchen Whitmer's campaign slogan was get the damn roads fixed? What can we do to strike that balance? And what and are some examples, perhaps? Yeah, let's go around, go around and, the room. And Lee, the, you started it, so let's, in a couple of seconds, just give us an idea and, and we'll ask everybody. I would say a statute of limitations on the ability to litigate. Allison? I would agree that it has to be within that process. There's some projects that NEPA process is supposed to be two to three years. There's some projects that could take 14, 15, even more years, and that is too long to wait. Vikram, do you want to, or is this really not in your wheelhouse? Well, I am a bond market geek, but I I did agree with a statute of limitations with respect to delegation. I think that makes sense. Jessica? Yeah, this is a huge problem for our counties in the West, and we would agree exhaustion would be helpful for this. And also meaningfully participating in the process, not just coming at the end and saying, oh, we want to sue now. And I have another jumble question, which perhaps we have. 10 seconds Wait, for each. On, this on is this, for Sam, uh, perhaps to, what is your hope for this great transformation as it rolls out? How do you see this working? What is your hope for what we will accomplish? Oh, that is so wonderful. I hope for both cathedral projects, these huge transformational projects, but also many, many, many thousands of backyard projects where people can look around and see that their lives are better, their water is cleaner, their internet is faster, their commutes are easier because of the great investment that we've done, that we will create millions of jobs, good jobs. We will teach people new trades. They will be on a path to work both in construction and in the clean energy economy. And our overall economic position in the world will be better because our infrastructure is no longer crumbling. Darn right. My little suburban street just got paved for the first time, I think, since the Revolutionary War. And we're all thankful for it. And I'm sure it will have an an economic payoff. And with that, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up because we're at the top of the hour. That's it for another special briefing. If you want to contact the panelists and our team, here's the info up on your screen. It'll be on our websites, too. And we encourage you to continue the dialogue with them and among ourselves. Thanks so much, Susan Wachter, and thanks to all of our great panelists and to our wonderful audience for joining us today. We'll be back with you on Thursday, November 30th, after you've had your turkeys, with our next special briefing on state and local pensions. Has the trillion-dollar pension crisis passed, or is it just waiting in the wings? Watch your email and our websites for more details, and please come back and join us. If you have any ideas, please send them forth. And before we close, thanks again to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation, and special thanks to our production team, Graham Dowd, Noah Wynn Ritzenberg, Idalis Foster, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.